Hello, and welcome to Slush, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden. And on this week's episode, I finally, finally get to talk about all things managing editorial. Now, I've had wonderful times chatting with all of these other guests. They've been phenomenal. I'm so lucky and so grateful to have had them. But I have to say, to be honest with you all, this is my favorite episode that I've ever recorded only because I got to geek out about Managing Ed. And this is, if you've ever listened to any episode, you know that I'm obsessed with managing editorial. It is my favorite department. It's my favorite topic to think about when it comes to publishing. So I was just so thrilled to get to just deep dive into everything Managing Editorial. This week's guest is so wonderful, so gracious, so kind. Her name is Liz Blaze. She's a managing editor with St. Martin's Press at Macmillan. So we are technically co-workers, although before this recording, we have never met. And that's mainly because I don't know how it works at other companies, the managing ad departments for other publishers. But at Macmillan, at least, the adult side of the company is really separate from the kids' side. We really don't interact at all. I've never really, until meeting Liz, I have never met really anyone from the adult side of the managing ad group. So it's really fascinating to get to compare how the adult side of Macmillan does their managing editorial work compared to how we do it over on the kids' side. And also, I just had such a great time chatting with Liz. She's so kind. She's so generous with her time. Really great advice. She also shouts out to a past guest who, have to say, is also one of my favorites. So it's just, it's just a great episode. I am thrilled for you to listen to this interview with Liz Blaze. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today about working and managing editorial. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about our department, which personally I feel doesn't get as much coverage as it deserves. I completely agree. I think we get no coverage at all, personally. And so I'm really excited to contribute to giving us some a little bit of coverage. I mean, it's a small podcast, but, you know, it's more than nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm here to help. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so let's jump right into the first question. How did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume. It was a long road. I will say that. I'm going to start with college. I remember being a senior, it being my last semester and having still no idea what I wanted to do with myself, my life. I was going to be finishing up with a bachelor in creative writing. And I also double majored in classics. And I just had no idea where either of those things would take me. And by stroke of luck, I coordinated a raffle for one of the clubs that I was in. And someone that was there to help with the raffle knew someone who was a literary agent. And that person connected me with this literary agent and got me an internship at one of the literary agencies. And that's kind of how I got started. I knew nothing about publishing. I had no idea what it was about. But, you know, I started getting manuscripts to read and to write reports on. And every week I learned a little bit more about the publishing industry and how everything works. And it was during my second internship that I also got lucky. There's a lot of luck in my story, I feel like, where at the end of my internship at another agency, one of the assistants to an agent ended up leaving the company. And they asked if I could stay and just fill in for a few weeks until they found a replacement. And that few weeks turned into several months. And it got to the point where they were like, you know what, we like you enough to hire you and have you stay on and do some admin until you can find a job. And next thing I knew, I was their receptionist. A few years later, I was an agent assistant and I was helping the agent sort through his own list of authors, sending proposals out to different editors. I learned a ton about the publishing industry. 
from him and from that role as an agent assistant. But mostly what I learned was that I wanted no part of being an agent. (laughs) It just wasn't for me. Authors are wonderful, but they can also be very demanding, which I understand. You know, they have their hopes and dreams in their manuscript and they're really depending on their agent to, you know, hopefully push it through and get them a book deal. But I realized that the buying and selling wasn't really for me. And what I really liked was actually the organization, keeping things in order, seeing where all the different projects were at any given time. And then I found out about the managing end department. I didn't know that they were a thing. And I thought, oh, my God, this sounds like exactly what I like to do. So I moved over to be an assistant managing editor at Gallery Books at Simon & Schuster. I had a great time. I had a great time learning about the other side of the publishing industry, what happens after a manuscript is sold and what happens once it goes into production and how it becomes a finished book and managing Ed's role in that. And I felt like I'm here. I'm home. This is where I should be. I spent a few years there at Gallery, and then I moved over to William Morrow, also in their managing end department. I just got some more experience working with manuscripts that come in, solving problems, helping to make galleys, tons and tons of galleys. I made a ton of galleys. And that's where I also learned a bit about copy editing and proofreading. And now I'm at Macmillan. I'm at St. Martin's Press as a managing editor. And it's been a year, but it feels like two days, really. It feels like I started just yesterday. I'm constantly learning new things here. And it's been great so far. That's so great. There's so many things that you said during that overview of your career that I completely related to. Like before I knew what, so I don't know if you've ever listened to any podcast. Totally fine if you haven't. But I talk about this a lot. So I apologize to the listeners for saying it again. But <laughs> I decided I wanted to work in publishing in sixth grade. But I didn't know anything about the industry other than that editors were in publishing. So I thought I wanted to be an editor because it was the only job I thought existed. I too thought I wanted to be an editor because that's the only job I thought existed. Exactly. And then I found out what actually the life of an editor is. And I was like, oh, God, no, thank you. I don't want that at all. That sounds horrible to me. And then one day I was in um, I went to a publishing institute and I was in a publisher's office, like doing an office tour. And one of the managing editors took us around and told us about his job. And he described his job as a mix of organization, copy editing and scheduling. And I was like, someone designed this job for me. This is the perfect job. How did I not know that this existed? I need this job. And I I think that's kind of true for a lot of people, at least in Manet. I think it's true for people in different departments as well, because I think there are certain departments people are more suited to based on their personality or whatever. But I think especially maybe Manet, because it is such a kind of a thankless department and it's also so behind the scenes. So like you really have to love the job to be in Manet, I think. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, you're 100% right. You super have to love the job. When I went to interview for the I think it was assistant managing editor. I'm honestly not sure of the title. It's been a while. My first role in managing ed at Gallery Books, the woman who interviewed me, who is a close friend still to this day, Susan Rella, she asked me in my interview, do you have any interest in editorial? And I said, oh God, no, because she was very used to having 
candidates come in and, you know, maybe they would be hired. And a few months later, when a spot opened up in editorial, they would just jump on it. And she wanted to know, are you really in this to be in managing ed? And I said from day one, no, I'm I'm here to be in managing ed. This is what I want. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons I knew I didn't want to be an agent was because of authors. Well, not all authors, but, you know, some authors can be hard to manage. But another thing that I had, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, was I noticed that with all of the reading I did, and it was, I did a lot of reading, a lot of sorting through the slush pile, a lot of, you know, writing reports. I found that once I was finished with all of that reading, the last thing I wanted to do was pick up a book for pleasure and read. Like I had moments where I couldn't even go into a bookstore. It was just so overwhelming. I was like, oh no, this has sort of killed my love of reading and I don't want anything to come in the way of me and my books. Yeah, that's another really common topic on this podcast. People who, because of publishing, have maybe ebbed and flowed with their relationship to reading. That's always a huge scare. And I do think man ed is one of those departments that is really good for that because there is a bit better. Of, I mean, it's not, you know, it's still publishing. So the work-life balance isn't great, but compared to like editorial, I think we have a much better work-life balance because we have nights and weekends for the most part. So yeah, I completely agree. Moving to the next question, what are some favorite projects and or titles that you've worked on so far in your career? This is going to be a really hard one for me. I really racked my brain thinking about this. And I'm going to say the first title that I ever worked on as a production editor. And it was All About Love by Bell Hooks. And it was just a reprint of this, you know, wonderfully classic book, but I'd never heard about it at all. All I was really doing was looking over the copyright page, updating that and making sure that there weren't any changes to the text, everything, you know, all the pages looked exactly as they did before, but still having that responsibility was kind of life-changing. And I'm not trying to minimize the work of a production editor who handles, you know, tons and tons of original titles, but it's a lot of responsibility that a production editor has. And I, I felt that responsibility, even as I was just checking over, you know, these pages that were for the most part unchanged. It stuck with me. It had a beautiful new cover once it was finished printing. And I got to hold the book in my hands and said, I really contributed to this book. And it was a, a really great experience. And I remember when Bell Hooks passed away, I think it was a few I think it was a year ago, I'm, I'm not sure, or sometime this past year, I'd be on the train and I'd see people reading this book, this reissued version of All About Love and just, you know, that feeling of pride. I felt that again. I feel that every time I see the book in stores, I just, it's just nice to know that I really played a part in making that, that book happen. I'm also going to say I didn't play as big of a part in this book as I would have liked to. But I spent a lot of time helping to create galleys for The Storyteller by Dave Grohl. And for anyone who doesn't know, he is the frontman of the Foo Fighters, who I love. I absolutely love the Foo Fighters. And I was excited about that acquisition from the time that I heard about it. And I just I just wanted to get my hands on those pages and dive in and helping to put that together, even in the smallest way, was really great. And I of course, I got to take an early look at those pages before it published. And it was so good. It was so well written. I just, I could have sat there 
forever reading that book because just the stories and the insights that he had were wonderful. And I unfortunately left, um, that was published by HarperCollins and I unfortunately left HarperCollins before that book, you know, was printed. But again, that same experience of going into a store and seeing this book that was just, you know, a thought or some words in an email or, you know, something mentioned in a meeting to, you know, a printed physical book that people could buy. And I mean, just knowing that I helped even in the smallest way. Oh, that feels so good. So those are some of my favorites. Yeah, I have to agree. That's one of my favorite things, that gratifying feeling of like, I contributed to this. Obviously, I didn't write it. It's not my book, but like, it's my book. I helped to make it happen. And I do, I also agree with seeing books in the wild. I've just started because I'm relatively newer in my career. So I've just started seeing books only in bookstores thus far. I haven't seen one like just in the world yet. I'm hoping soon. But even just seeing them in a store, you pick it up and you're like, this was a file on my computer screen eight months ago. And now it's a book and I'm holding it like what? That's crazy. So, yeah, I just I completely agree. It's the best feeling. It's awesome. It's incomparable. It feels really good. I mean, even now I'm contributing more now as managing editor at SMP than I had been previously in my career. And so even now, even if the books themselves, the titles themselves aren't my favorite books, it feels really good. It just feels really good to see them, especially now in a, we're not in a post-COVID world, but I mean, COVID is not over, but living in the world that we're in, I don't know about you, but we're not getting physical books anymore. So once the books are off the press, you say goodbye. And then maybe I get a snapshot from someone else who got a book to say, hey, this book is in, it looks great. This is awesome. And she's like, oh, great. But yeah, having those moments, where I maybe go into the office or go to a bookstore. I'm on the train. I'm like, oh, it's that book that I helped work on. It's it's cool. It'll never stop being cool. Yeah, I completely agree. Actually, though, I, I started in my role two, three months before the pandemic started. So I didn't have a chance to even work on a book really until we went digital and everything. So I've never experienced that. Like, finish this book. It just got printed. Here's a copy for you to review. Never experienced it. And I'm so I'm so jealous of that because it seems like it'd be the most fun feeling. It is a fun feeling. I can also say that, you know, some books leave scars. <laughs> some books are really tough to work on. And you are so happy to send those files off to the printer and say, please print this. I'm done with this. And for some people, I've heard from other colleagues, for some people, getting that finished book is like catharsis. It's just like, oh, it's done. It's really done. And then some people are like, I never want to see this book again. So, you know, it, it depends on the book. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've definitely had a couple of those problem children already. So I imagine like, especially the further you get into your career, more and more of those happen here and there. So I can see that. Okay, moving to the next question. How would you describe the work that your department does? I used to love to use the analogy of being a train conductor because there are so many books or there can be for a managing editor. They are overseeing anywhere from several to hundreds of books at one time and you are just really making sure that those books we'll think of them as little book trains stay on the track so they get to the station on time and that requires a lot of coordination and collaboration especially with other departments we work with so many other departments we work with the cover art department we work with marketing we work with editorial of course 
We work with production editors and designers and production managers. And I'm sure I'm missing a crucial department. Production editorial, of course. You know, we're, we're just constantly working with all these different groups to say, hey, here's what we need to accomplish. Here's how I propose we get it done. And other people have an opportunity to chime in and say, yes, this will work for me or no, this doesn't work because X, Y, Z. So in that regard, I'm also going to say there's also some wrangling. Sometimes I think of myself as a cowboy or a cowgirl because there are so many different pieces to making a book. And anytime I think of it, it kind of blows my mind just how many pieces you need to be put together for a book to be made. And as a managing editor, you have to think about all of those pieces and make sure that everything gets done for each of those components. Make sure everything is running on track. Make sure that all of our deadlines are being hit. And then inevitably, when we don't hit a deadline, you've got to figure out, okay, how do we get this train back on the track? What do we need to do to make sure that we hit our pub date? So coordination and wrangling. <laughs> yeah, I often, mostly when I describe my job to people, I'm like, I'm basically a project manager for books. That's the simplest way I, that people I like. say that also. If, if I feel like my long spiel that I just gave you is going to go over their head. I just say, I'm a project manager for books, like you said, and I just say, that's it. And they go, oh, okay, that's cool. Something else that I forgot, because I have just a couple little notes over here, is quality control. Managing it is also quality control. Making sure that not only do we have our book put together with all of their you know relevant parts, but making sure that we make the best possible book that we can. And sometimes there are incidents. Sometimes there is a whole signature that is bound upside down and it's awful and unfortunate and maybe you cry about it. But managing ed is basically trying to ensure that something like that does not happen. But at the end of the day, we're all only human. Yeah, definitely. And I just want to ask, after hearing your description, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like, at least on the adult side at Macmillan, you guys are a separate department from production editorial. Is that the case? It's complicated. <laughs> so the way the reporting structure, at least for like the SMPG group, which St. Martin's Press is a part of, we have the production editors report into a director of production editorial, who then reports into our senior managing editor, who is my boss. So production editorial is technically their own department, but they do report into managing ed. Okay, that makes sense. Because I don't know, I think because I've only ever had this one job, I do kind of think of the industry as how my job works. And so in our department, managing and production editor, one department, and the managing editors are co-workers of the production editors, but obviously the managing editor is overseeing them in their specific imprints titles. So hearing you say like that department, I was like, whoa, weird. Because I always think of production editors as my department. So well, it's interesting because when I used to work at Harper, production editorial was folded in under the managing editorial umbrella. But at Simon & Schuster, they were a totally separate department and they did not report into managing ed at all. They had their own director that they reported into and we just worked alongside them. So it's different. It varies from place to place. Yeah, I think that's kind of true. I mean, I think that's true about all the departments to a certain degree, but I do think that's particularly true with man ed because it seems like every house does it a pretty drastically different way some people call us project editors there are different titles at some places and it's just bizarre but i did want to ask and maybe it's not fair to ask since you are not a production editor but i do want to make sure people listening know the distinction between a managing editor and a production editor so would you mind describing what that distinction is the easiest way to 
distinguish is when a manuscript comes in to production, for production, I should say, rather, it's got different terminology depending on where you are. Here, at, at least on the adult trade side, we call it a transmittal when it transmits to managing ed. In other places, it's been called a pass for press. But same thing, when a manuscript transmits to managing ed, managing ed is essentially reviewing all of the material and making sure it's ready to pass on to a production editor, who is then going to ferry that beautiful book ship along and make sure that that book gets copy edited, make sure that it gets proofread, and make sure that, you know, spelling, grammar, page makeup, etc., all of those things are taken care of. So they're usually hiring out copy editors and proofreaders to handle that sort of thing. Whereas Managing Ed does not do that, at least not here at Macmillan. And they are just overseeing to make sure that the production editor has handled all of those things on their end. It's not really a simple explanation, but that was the best that I could do. Yeah, I kind of always distinguish it as the managing editor is managing the entire list of books for like an imprint or whatever list of titles they're working on. And then the production editor is working on each individual title, doing all of the individual work to make sure that book is printed. That's sort of a better explanation than what I gave. But yeah, the production editor is doing it more with an eye toward spelling and grammar and punctuation, etc. I did want to ask, though, because on our end... This, I apologize to the listeners because I've never talked to someone on the adult side, so it's fascinating to know how different it is. On the kids' side, managing editors also do some production editorial work. So we do a select number of titles per season. So like I have five, six titles per season usually that I'm working on as a production editor. I think it's mostly just to keep us engaged so we know what's happening so we're not out of touch with production editors. Also, I think it's just kind of fun work to do. But is, do you guys do that as well or is it just completely separated? It's not completely separate. It just varies. Like I do know of some managing editors on the adult side who act as production editors. But at SMP, us managing editors are not acting as production editors. There may be some crossover with some of the conversions that we do. That is books that are not originals that have already been printed or produced in a different format and are going to be reproduced in a format that's different from the original. It's kind of a complicated way of explaining it. But for the most part, no is the answer. That's really fascinating. I think one of the things I really like about the way at least our department is run is that I do get that. Like, And especially I think from my first job, because I already knew that I wanted to be in managing ed because it's just the perfect job for me, I think. But still getting to see it and do some of the work of production ed is, I think, really useful. So anyway, sorry, I'm just rambling at this point. <laughs> no, no, no. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Every once in a while, I do wish that I were doing it. I don't know how I would do it because I frankly don't have the time. But it's exactly as you said. It keeps you fresh. It keeps you in the know about, OK, what are the challenges that a production editor is facing? And when you as the managing editor are faced with solving these problems that production editors run into, you can think about it with a production editor's mindset and say, okay, well, this is a problem. This is what the production editor is going to need. This is how I can go about solving their problem, or this is what I can recommend that they do. And sometimes I am able to put on a little bit of a production editor's brain or hat and do that assessment, but sometimes I'm not actually. Sometimes I have to reach out to someone else, maybe our director of production editorial and say, hey, this is kind of a sticky one and I'm not sure what the PE needs. Can you advise? 
it's just so interesting. Even at the same company, it's so it's like not so different. Obviously, we're doing essentially the same work, but the minutiae of the different like there is variance. I've been learning that this past year. There is variance from imprint to imprint. Some things we do the same, but there are some things that are very different. I'm sure we'll find some more differences as we go on. And a great segue to the next question. What are your favorite and least favorite parts of your job? Okay, favorite part, problem solving. And the caveat to that is solving problems that I know the answer to. (laughs) I absolutely love when someone emails me and asks me a question or comes to me with a problem that I know how to handle. Because for me, it's just like, oh, it's easy as, you know, ABC. This is what we do. We've got it, you know. And then it's so easy to feel like a hero and to be like, oh, my gosh, I've saved the day. Uh, that was nothing. And then I'm going to say least favorite part is also problem solving. <laughs> and in that regard, I mean, those really sticky, hairy situations where you're like, I have no idea what to do. Sometimes we have really complex books, really complex titles that need you know, a lot of attention or they run into issues and you just don't know what to do. And you really got to take the time to set up meetings with some of the other departments and work this out and say, this is what we're dealing with. And, you know, I'm not sure what the best way forward is. Let's lay out some different options and figure out a way ahead. But even those difficult problems that you face can be learning opportunities. I've been trying to think of them that way when I am faced with a challenge or a question that I don't know the answer to. Instinctively, I get frustrated. But then I think, you know what, after it's been solved, now I know better for next time. And it inevitably happens that that same issue crops up and I say, oh, I just dealt with that. I got it. I'm the hero again. So problem solving for sure. I'm trying to think of some other favorites or least favorites. I do absolutely love reviewing jackets and cover mechanicals, at least when I have the time to, because as a book lover, I judge books by their cover. I know I shouldn't, but I can't help it. It's the first thing that I see. They are so eye-catching and eye-grabbing. And in the same way that it's nice to see a physical version of the book that you've been working on once it's actually printed, It's also wonderful to see the jacket or cover for the first time and feel like, oh, here's the whole package. Everything's coming together. It's so nice. And then imagining what it's going to look like once it's printed. Oh, God, that's a great one. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things is when you've been working on a book for a little bit and then finally you see the cover all laid out and designed and you're like, oh, that's what this cover looks like. I knew what this book was, but. This cover is just so perfect for this book and it just made sense for this book. I just had it like a couple of days ago. I, I got the first pass of a cover of this book that I've been working on for a few months. And it's a gorgeous cover. And I was like, oh my God, this is a real thing. It's so beautiful. I can't wait. It's just the best. It's so exciting. I totally agree. Yeah, that happened to me last week. And I was like, oh, this is beautiful. And sometimes I'm always tempted to leave a little note for the cover or jacket designer and say, this is gorgeous. And I have to like rein it in say, nope, just, you know, stick to the normal comments. But I might send them a note on the side and let them know because I'm sure they'd love to hear positive feedback for their hard work. I think that may be also different between adult and children's because in children's we're like, oh my God, this is gorgeous. We like put that in the comic. I don't know. Maybe it's like, maybe we're a little freer over here. I don't know. But if I'm like working on it, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think you are freer. In all of my past experience, 
from what I understand about the children's department, every children's department, they're so much more relaxed and they are much freer and they are always having more fun than the adult side. Everywhere I've been, the children's group is having more fun. That's what I've also heard. I have obviously nothing to compare it to. And actually, when I got this job, I was like, ugh, it's kids. I wanted man ed, but I was like, I'll take anything. But really, I want adult because I read adult books. But then I got in and I was like, this is so fun. And, and I get to talk about unicorns and sparkles and I get to work on picture books all the time. Like this art is so beautiful. It's just the most fun. So I started out never wanting to be in kids. And I was like, as soon as an adult job opens up, I'm going to move to adult. And now I'm like, I'm never leaving kids. This is so much fun. Um, okay, moving to the next question. What traits and or skills do you feel are necessary for a person looking for a job in managing it? Number one, you have to be organized. I say this as someone who loves organization, but is actually very messy. <laughs> I love things to be very neat and clean, but I just have messy habits myself. Organization is key. As I mentioned before, a managing editor is handling or overseeing anywhere from several, yes, I know it's a vague number, to hundreds, a much larger number of books at one time. And you need a clear system to help you track the status of every title and help you with your follow-ups so that nothing falls through the cracks. It's crucial. I can't, I can't say that word enough. Also, attention to detail is really important. Sometimes the devil is really in the detail, whether it's in an email that one little line that you didn't read that's actually the most important part of the whole email and the fate of the whole book hinges on those, you know, five little words that you skipped over. That has happened to me many times. I'm also going to say you need to be tough because you are getting hit with requests constantly and everyone's request is the most important. So there's a lot of pressure. And sometimes, unfortunately, you have to be the bad guy and tell someone that, you know, this thing that they've said is really important or that they really want that you can't have. And it can be difficult. I don't know about you, but I find that there are occasionally really intimidating people that you run into, at least in my past experience. And it can be really hard to tell someone like that, no, but it's our job. It's our job to tell them what can and can't be done. And you can't be afraid. You can't be afraid to tell it like it is. And segueing into another trait that I think is really essential for a managing editor, great communication skills. The ability to phrase things in a certain way or smooth things over over email and just kind of sugarcoat something a little bit is going to get you so far. I feel like I'm rambling, but I have so many just examples in my mind of how I turned a terrible situation into a not so bad situation with a nice email. Yeah, most of the people in my department, we talk about this a lot. We have to be diplomat. We have to like make the thing happen, but in the way that makes everyone the happiest possible so that because we all have to continue working together. We can't make enemies because next week we're going to be working with them again on a different book. And you can't create resentments with one another if you want to have a nice working relationship. I also did want to go back to when you said organization was important. I love when people ask me like prospective people who want to work in managing it potentially. They're like, so I have to be organized. And I'm like, yeah, you have to be organized. And they're like, okay, well, I'm not like super organized. I'm like, well, okay, well, maybe, but you have to be like, I don't know, maybe you can make it work. But I think most people in man ed are the type A-ist type A people, at least internally, maybe not. You know what I mean? That, do you disagree? You are correct. And I am the exception. I am the exception to the rule. And anyone who's ever met me is shocked to learn that I'm not type A. 
personally, I'm a beta. I'm a proud beta. I would rather anyone else lead and I follow. But this is just, you know, I understand the role. I have to be a leader in this role. And so I put on the leader hat and I do my job. But everyone else is typing for sure. I'm not, I don't know how to say it. Like personally, not in my professional career, I would never. But personally, I'm excellent at procrastinating. I'm excellent at putting off the things that I don't want to do until later or until they've gotten to a point where, uh oh, I must deal with it now. But professionally, I'm nice and organized and neat and tidy. You can be both. You just have to make a concerted effort to do it. See, now that you say it like that, I think I might be a little closer to you than the normal type A because I also, in my personal life, can procrastinate for a very long time. I just think fundamentally my brain is so type A, like everything has to have like a nice little box and it's got to be organized and it's got to be placed in a certain, that's how my brain functions. But like I can be messy and I am sometimes, but every time I see that mess, I'm like, this is a mess. I can't just like, I'll leave it there and I'll let it happen. But I'm like, this is wrong and it shouldn't be there. And I know that, but I'm accepting it. That's me. I... So no matter what apartment I've been, I've always had, we'll call it a chair. There's always the chair that I just throw my crap on that or a table that I just throw my crap on and I say, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I don't know where it goes right now. It needs a place. I don't know what that place is. And until I find the place for it, it's just going to sit right here. And then it gets to a point where I look at it and I'm like, my God, this is awful. I need to fix this. And I clear off the table or I clear off the chair. But it's just an endless cycle. You know, I know that I can be messy and then it reaches like a breaking point and I say no more. We must clean up this mess. And then everything's beautiful and wonderful. And I feel so, so satisfied. But, you know, you just got to go back and forth. Yeah, I have. I also have the chair. And I think the biggest issue is when the thing that doesn't have a place that becomes its place, the chair is where it lives now. And it's like, no, 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 no. This can't be where this lives. Okay, we went on quite a tangent, but I do fully agree that communication, diplomacy, sugarcoating, organization, all of those things are like so core to being in managing it. So fully agree with your answer. Moving to the next question. And this is kind of the big question of the episode. Can you walk us through the standard work that you do in your role for an individual title from start to finish? Yes, I can. So it varies from publishing house to publishing house. But for me, in my experience, the role of a managing editor, their relationship with the book typically starts somewhere around acquisition. I think it's a different experience here, but it's sometime around acquisition when you learn about the book and then you start to have those early conversations with the editor, at least if there's something that catches your eye or that is concerning about the title, you want to have those conversations with the editor. Can I jump in? I'm so sorry to interrupt. Can you talk about what those concerning things about a title might be? Oh, yeah. So some concerning things that may raise a flag for a managing editor are a high profile author, especially one that maybe has never written a book before, because you want to make sure that they understand what is going to be asked of them, their requirements, and that they're going to meet their deadlines. Another concern may be if the book is a crash or if based on when the manuscript is expected to transmit to managing ed and based on when they are asking or expecting that the book will pub, that isn't enough time for production, essentially. So that's another big flag. I'd say that those are the two big early flags that would be raised. You think that answers the question? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great answer. Thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just, I heard it and I was like, hmm, people might wonder. So 
Thank you for answering. No problem. So jumping back in, just to elaborate more. So as early as possible, having conversation with editors and publishers, if you do have that relationship, to talk about the list for a given season, to learn about the different specs and requirements for all the books, and to do as much early forecasting or anticipating of any of those issues that I mentioned before periodically reviewing the metadata, the title's metadata for accuracy. I'll say that once. Also generating book schedules. That's a big responsibility, at least here at Macmillan. I've been at other publishing houses where scheduling is not a responsibility of managing ed, but here it's a pretty big one. So scheduling our books in our systems, making sure that you distribute that schedule to everyone and that everyone agrees that they can meet their deadlines and their turnaround times. What else is there? Reviewing the manuscript and all the supporting documentation when it comes in, making sure that all of the necessary questions have been answered. If there are any new questions that arise, that you get clear answers from editorial about those and making sure that Everything is ready to be passed on to production editorial and to design for them to actually get started working on the book. Having regular status meetings with all of the necessary departments. So for us, that would be with, you know, production editorial, with design, with the production managers, with the art department. And we usually have a representative from the editorial side, too to just talk about current status of all of our titles and how they're progressing and making sure that we're meeting our deadlines. And if we see that we've missed a deadline, checking in with the book project team to try and resolve any issues so that, you know, we can get back on track and try to avoid impacting further delays in the schedule. And then I'll say reviewing the final versions of the text and also the final version of the jacket or cover and making sure everything looks good, that there are no errors. Yeah, I think that's it. I feel like that's the managing editor's relationship with the book. I mean, it varies depending on the book. Every book has different needs, but in a nutshell, I think that's it. What, what do you think? Have I missed anything in your experience? I think that covers most of it. I think it's also hard for me because my experience is so it's kind of more amorphous. There's less delineation between a man ed and a PE for my end. But I do think one thing that might be really good to talk about, because you didn't really specifically mention it during the, describing the work of the department question, and I didn't even think to flag it, the metadata and like title management system work that man ed does. Can you talk a little bit more about all of that and how that works in your job? Yeah, this has been a big part of managing Ed's job at every house that I've been at. Managing the metadata is super important. I mean, there are fields that we're in charge of managing, but it's, you know, the title, the subtitle, the author's name, the price. Then there's other little details like, you know, what season it's in, making sure that all of that's correct because it's going to feed out to our retailers like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And if there's an audiobook, you know, Audible, et cetera, making sure that everything is accurate and correct so that we have, you know, someone from the metadata team said this last week so that we have healthy information feeding out to retailers and our consumers. And just, you know, there are regular updates Sometimes publishers will go through and update all the prices. And so managing ed is responsible for doing that. Here in managing ed, we are responsible for new title setup. So after acquisition, setting up the title record in Biblio. If there's 
a simultaneous edition or a co-edition, like a Canadian edition. We set those up too. Yeah. Making sure that everything is accurate. Yeah, I often say that Maned is the admin role in the publisher. Like, obviously, there's admin in every role. There's admin work everywhere. But Maned is kind of the admin work of the publisher, in my at least in my experience. We're like making sure that all of the data is correct. We're following up on all this stuff. It's a lot of admin based work, but I love that personally. Like (laughs) I was a student assistant in high school and I was like, I could be someone's assistant. I think I could really excel at that because I love making copies. And like, you know, this like very, to most people, boring work I enjoy. And I think there is a lot of that in Man Ed as well. Do you agree or is that not the experience you've had? No, that has also been my experience. And I also agree that I love that work too. And the reason I love it is because with metadata, there are rules, there are strict rules. And I find that with managing ed, there aren't as many hard and fast rules, mostly because it's a very big job. But with metadata, you can boil it down to a specific field, a specific type of data and say, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. If this, then this. And if not this, then you do this and that. I'm like, that's great. You know, here's two pages. Okay, I'm not going to minimize the work of anyone that works in metadata, but it feels like it's easier to boil down the work of someone who manages metadata than it is to boil down, you know, the work or the rhyme or reason of how we make our decisions in managing it. Yeah, I would agree. It seems like at least in the metadata that we manage, it seems like it's very easy to like write an instruction. These are the step by step guide to how you do this. And then like all the time I go to my supervisor and I'm like, I have no idea how to handle this situation. And she's like, oh, yeah, I handled this once a few years ago. This is how we handled it. It's a lot more accrual of experience in order to like write a guide. And even then you couldn't cover everything because every book is its own thing. And obviously a lot of the problems you run into are similar, if not the same as other books, but there's, you know, it could be a completely different problem that you've never experienced before. And you have to figure out how to get through it. So it's really not easy to write. Here's how to be a managing editor. Here's a step by It's not, you can't, you can't really. Yeah, I, I agree. One of the skills that I thought about saying was essential for someone who's looking to go into man ed was good judgment. And then I realized you can't have that. That's something that just comes with time and experience and dealing with a variety of situations. So you will you will learn good judgment as you go along. And until then, you'll ask questions. And even after that, you still ask questions, I think. I have to assume. Thank you so much for that answer. Moving to the next question. What is one thing you wish you knew about publishing and or your role before you started working in the industry? I'm going to take the words out of your mouth because I think you said this earlier. And it's what I've been thinking, really. It can be a thankless job. (laughs) It can be a, a thankless job and also relentless, at least on from my experience working in adult trade, the books never stop. And with the books, the problems, the problems never stop. They keep going. They keep coming, rather. And they don't wait for you to catch up. They don't wait for you to finish solving all the other problems, you know, for you to be ready to take on the new problem. And you just need to multitask and handle it. And sometimes that means you don't eat lunch that day or your lunch is a power bar. As for it being a thankless job, I feel like compared to other departments, managing ed is one of the last groups to be thanked when a book does well or when a book hits the bestseller list. And that that comes from just my past experience in managing ed, just 
other departments get their praise first. It's usually editorial, publicity, and marketing. And then every once in a while, managing ad or the production editor or designers will get thanks. And it's not that I need thanks. It's just, it's nice. It's something that's nice to know when you're going into it. Like, don't expect praise for your accomplishments. Yeah, which is kind of depressing to hear, honestly. But I don't know. I'm kind of one of those people that like, part of the reason I like Van Ed is that it's kind of more anonymous, which is ironic because I'm literally doing a podcast about publishing, which is very public. But thinking about editorial, I was like, your neck is out there all the time with these books because you're choosing what books to publish. So like, if you choose a bad book, is your job then in jeopardy? I don't know. So I kind of liked the anonymity of I'm just plugging along, doing my little managing end thing in the background. But also with that comes knowing, ever knowing what managing end is or what we do, which is a thing that I've experienced so many times in the last couple of years. People will come up to me and they're like, oh, you're a managing editor. What does that mean? What do you do? And I'm like, you've worked in publishing for like 10 years. What do you mean you don't know? And then also like no one's ever going to know you worked on that book unless you're in one of those lucky places where they put your name in it, which is not a thing for the most part in the entire industry. So like you just have to be comfortable with knowing like I worked on that book and I know I did. And that's got to be enough for me because most times you're not going to get no one's going to give you kudos for the great copy edit you got on that book because people aren't thinking about that. They're thinking about the story and the characters, which is, of course, what you're thinking about when you're reading a book. But like without our work, the book's not as good, you know, so it would be nice every once in a while to be like, hey, you did a great job making this book better. But that's kind of what you have to come to know as you work in, in this position, I think. Yeah, I agree. I remember the days of working at the literary agency that I worked at. There were lots of book parties, you know, lots of book parties for after a book had been published or, you know, celebrating a book that did really well. And agents were always invited to those. And then I remember my boss at the time when I told him that I was going to Managing Ed, he said, listen, there aren't as many parties for you. (laughs) And, And I was just like, oh, okay. And I I understood it once I moved over to Managing Ed because the parties were still happening, but we weren't getting the invites. That's what changed. And so for anyone listening who's thinking about going into Managing Ed, don't be surprised when you hear that there was a party and you weren't invited. Yeah, that is also a thing that I've heard because obviously, like I said before, I started two months before the pandemic, so there haven't really been book parties as much because of, you know, the global issue we've been dealing with as a collective. But yeah, there used to be like raucous book parties that people would just go to and like at work get drunk. They were raucous. I've been to some, I've been to a number and and they were raucous. Yeah, that's the only word. <sighs> Good times. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the only things about Man Ed that I don't like. I want to be invited to the party because I think I would have a lot of fun and I think I deserve to be there. So that's my push now. I've just decided that's my mission to get Maneds invited to parties because we're fun too. Yes. Good mission. I like it. I'm on board. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Okay, next question. And this is the very important one. If some higher up person with all the power in publishing came to you and said, hey, Liz, for one day only, you can make any change to this industry and it will forevermore be that way. What changes would you make to improve publishing? For sure, I would say more diversity. And that goes across the entire scope of the publishing industry, from the books that we publish to the authors who get book deals to the type of talent that is hired. Just having more diversity 
it would be so amazing. I know that there's been a lot of effort made over the last few years, but it just hasn't made as big of an impact as I think needs to be made. And I'm thinking a lot about the people of color that I know work in the publishing industry, and they are usually at the assistant level. And being an assistant is really hard, taxing, grueling work. But think of the difference it would make if there were more senior and executive level people of color in the publishing industry. A person of color who is an assistant, seeing those people at those levels can know that the work that they're putting in isn't for nothing. They can rise the ranks. They can reach that level, you know. They can be at the level where they're giving significant input and they can help to implement the kind of change in the industry that needs to be made. I just think that's it for me. More diversity. Yeah, I think that's an amazing answer. And I I also would, if it's okay, I would like to add on better retaining of diverse talent because the issue is they keep hiring diverse talent and then the diverse talent leaves because they can't function, have a life with the horrible salaries and the horrible support and the microaggressions and the racism. And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah of course, we're not going to be diverse if you can't keep people in the job that they want to have because you're horrible to them. Like crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. And I know at least in the publishing spheres that I'm in, especially online, I know there's a lot of discourse about that because it is really bad. The salaries, they are not livable. And it's kind of ridiculous when publishing execs pull out these charts at their like year end reviews and say, you know, look at our staff, look at the improvements that we've made in terms of diversity and our employees, but they're not, I don't think that, that enough is being done to retain the, those staff members, those people of color. And it's exactly as you said, they need the salaries, they need the livable wages to keep them working in the industry so that they can stay long enough to get those promotions and rise the ranks and become those senior and executive level employees that we need. I wish I had a magic wand. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us do wish that. I would also just one more thing to tag on to that. I do think Specifically thinking about the end of year, because I've seen these from multiple publishers. It's not just one publisher. They do these like, oh my gosh, look, we've improved diversity by like certain amount percent this year. Like our staff is so much more diverse. But it's never like, here's the percentage of people who got promoted who are people of color. It's never that. It's always total staff. And it's like, yeah, but if they leave tomorrow, then this didn't make any lasting change. The number is just going to go down again because you're treating these people horribly. And obviously, it's publishing in general is treating people horribly. But people who are minorities are getting treated drastically differently because they are minorities. Racism, microaggressions, etc. It's true. So it's like, of course, of course, they're not going to stay. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I think publishers, when they get hit with that kind of criticism, their response is always at least in my experience. Well, they should be staying because they love the work. That's what they expect, you know, not for the salaries. But come on, this is New York City in 2022 and inflation's at like a crazy high. Be real. Don't tell us about your profits and then tell us that you expect entry level staff to live on nothing. Pennies. It's not fair. Yeah. My least favorite thing about publishing I think truly this is the thing I hate the most is this idea that we have to be grateful for working in publishing. And like, don't get me wrong. I love working on books. I think this is a really cool job, but it's a job and you better pay me money to do this job. And it's a hard job to do. So you better pay me a good amount of money because 
Sometimes in my dark moments, I do look at project manager roles in like tech and they're making easy like 100K and I'm probably never going to make that in this role. And I've resigned myself to be okay with that, but I shouldn't have to be okay with nothing. I should be okay with a lot less maybe, but like something. I should be okay with something. It's the goal, I think. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes, it does make sense. I've, I've absolutely been there. I remember a couple years after graduating and hearing what some of my friends made, what their salaries were. I was astonished. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to make that amount of money. I just accepted. I was like, well, I'm never going to make that. And I actually made a number of strategic moves where, you know, I'm making a decent living. But I know that that's not the case for everybody. And I know that there are plenty of people who work in other industries and different fields who are making a ton more. And it's just, yeah, I can't make sense of it. (laughs) That's it. I can't make sense of it. Why things are still are the way that they are in terms of salary in the publishing industry. Yeah, it's just so frustrating. And it's not like it's a new thing that people have just started talking about in the last few years. As far as I can tell, everyone's always talked about this from the beginning of time, except maybe back in like the 50s when everyone who worked at the publisher was the son of the publisher. Like, sure, maybe they weren't complaining about their salaries, but the second any other person started working there, they had to be like, hey, you're paying us nothing. You recognize that that's wild, right? So I just... I mean, I get why it hasn't changed because of greed, but it's just wild to me that like, anyway, this has become way off topic. Thank you so much for going down this road with me. I'm going to move to the next question. Sure. The final question, the final official question is, what is the best advice that you've received thus far in your career? So the best advice that I've received was actually given to me by one of your previous guests, Nemeche Waliaya. She was my manager when I was working at William Morrow at HarperCollins. And she told me that you can't know everything and it's okay to ask questions. For me, one of my biggest insecurities, especially being in this role, being a managing editor, being expected to have the answers and know how to solve all the problems is, you know, what happens when, you know, someone throws something at me and I don't know what to do. And the truth of of that situation is that it happens all the time. I regularly don't know what to do, but I just have to remember it's okay that I don't know everything. I haven't encountered every situation. Books vary and situations vary. Problems vary. So it's okay to not know how to handle something, not know the best way to do something. And it's totally fine to ask for help or to ask someone a question or to pull some people in a room or a virtual room these days and say, hey, how do we deal with this? What should we do? You know, not everything's on me. So thank you, Nemeche. Such great advice. And I'm such a huge fan of Nemeche. She was such a wonderful guest. I, I've gushed to so many people about her. <laughs> I'm just such a huge fan. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing that advice. It's a wonderful tidbit. I think will help so many people. And that is the last official question. So two more really quick questions before I let you go. And I just want to say now, I'll say it again at the end, but thank you so much for doing this. I so appreciate that you took the time out of your schedule, especially today, a million degrees outside. We should all just be like sitting in a cold room and like turning the lights off and just hibernating or something. We should not be functioning right now. So thank you so much for doing that. But the last two questions that I have for you, Number one, if you would like to be followed on the internet, where can we follow you? And then number two, do you have any upcoming titles or projects that you're really excited about that you want to shout out to the listeners? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Lizabit. That's L-I-Z-Z underscore A underscore B-I-T. And 
Okay. Um, so one title that I'm actually really excited about is called Your Table is Ready by Michael Chechi Azzolino. I think I said that correctly, but it's all about his time as a maitre d' for the hottest New York City restaurants through the 80s and 90s. And this is one of those titles that was mentioned in emails. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of cool. But actually scrolling through the text, there are just so many interesting tidbits and like juicy stories about life in the restaurant industry. And also seeing the cover, which is beautiful. It just really felt like the kind of book that I would pick up. And I, I'm not much of a nonfiction reader, but it just seemed like that was a time and place that I would love to be transported to. The New York City restaurant scene in like the 80s and 90s. Yeah, take me back. That's such a great answer. I, that sounds such like such a fascinating book. I have to look into that. Thank you so much for those last questions. And thank you so much again for taking the time to do this. I so appreciate it, especially since you have never met me. Um, <laughs> it's a very small podcast. It's a big risk to go on. So thank you so much. I mean, not a big risk, but like, you know, it's, it's not every day that you go on a random person's podcast, I assume. I mean, maybe you do, but I don't certainly. So thank you so much for taking that leap and being willing to do this and for sharing your experience and being so wonderful. I just... I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. I had a great time. It was really nice to commiserate with someone else in managing Ed for a change. And I had a great time, you know, covering all these questions and just diving in. Yeah, it was it was really fun. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at slushpod, and if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the hosts or guests' employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.